Hello dear listener, welcome back to Where Eagles Dare, I'm Dave. And I'm Peter. And this time we are cruising into July 1984 with the 1980s run of Eagle issues 120 to 123. Hooray! And what were you doing in July 1984, Peter, as if I didn't know? Well, I had my birthday in July 1984. I turned an age. Very well done. It was a good year. (laughs) Any year with a birthday and it's a good year. Well, yes, yes, that's right. You, you, you have a limited number. But, oh, what an exciting time July 1984 was, Dave. John McEnroe smashed Jimmy Connors in the tennis. Martina Navratilova mm-hmm. smashed Chris Evert in the tennis. David Longy smashed Robert Muldoon in a local election. There's Muldoon, Peter! <laughs> <laughs> well, it was the general election, yeah. So both Rob mm. Muldoon and Vanessa Williams that month both had things to regret. But um, uh, I'd be careful about looking either of those up on the internet, kids. Yes. At least neither of them met Doomlord, or did they? Mm. <laughs> of course, that sort of segs into some of the other stuff that happened that month as well, Dave, such as the PG rating. Yes, a PG-13 being introduced in the USA. Mm. And in the UK, the Video Recordings Act of 1984 was introduced to combat the terror of video nasties. Although in 2009 it was deemed unenforceable under European law. (laughs) Where's that Brexit taking you? And we were lulled into a false sense of security over it all by the dulcet tones of George Michael's careless whisper. Cusacks. Whereas nowadays it's careless coughing. (laughs) In 1984, Olympics open. Surprise, surprise. Oh, yes. Very topical, of course, for these issues. Um, Although not so much for what we're going to be recording tonight. Is that right, Dave? Yes, we might have a little bit of jiggery-pokery as usual as we shuffle things around in the recording schedule. But speaking of television and recording schedules... Yes. Let's go to the star of the hour, Doomlord, in The Gemini Plague, written by Alan Grant... Art as ever by Heinzel, Team Heinzel. Letters by Tony Jacob. Thanks, Phil. <laughs> In a story we like to call Watch Out, There's Beatles About. <laughs> so, Doomlord's new tally show is going gangbusters, including an adaptation of Mastermind, where he interrogates a High Court judge on its extrajudicial transgressions. With the beak at his beck and call, Vec reads him the list, but we cut away to a glowing Johnny Corolla his producer, before we can see judgment delivered. But an uncomfortable clinch is broken by the arrival of Vic's new nemesis, Douglas Reeve of the Home Office. He's here to tell Doomlord of a sinister alien menace dubbed the Gemini Plague, from its not-so-heavenly origin. I wonder how many government consultations there were in coming up with that name. Did they hire consultants? Did they get Saatchi and Saatchi to do a logo and everything? Yeah. (laughs) A major disaster is imminent. And Doomlord is most happy to help. He choppers into the stricken burly Newtown, just in time to see a citizen under attack by one of the alien slugs. Vic leaps from the copter, grabbing one of the bugs to test its armour, and crushes it in his alien grip. The Grateful Man asks for his autograph, and Doomlord happily obliges. This is a new Vic, 
Don't stop for bloody autographs. The place is crawling. It's not Doomlord. That's the guy who says, oh, I'm starstruck. <laughs> As I say, he's the star of the hour, but Mr. Reeve isn't impressed. Calling out Vic on his bloodthirsty TV show, Vic merely replies that he only killed those people for the good of the species. I have never killed without reason or refused to help when I was needed. An X-ray of a less fortunate victim of the Geminids shows that the creature's mouth parts fuse to the neck vertebrae of their prey, meaning they can't be removed. They feed instead on their host's neural energy, and in Burley's emergency medical bay, a deceased victim suddenly liquefies into a gelatinous, sludgy pile, like frog spawn. <laughs> Just like that. Eggs from which more Geminids hatch. The newborn hatchlings soon turn on the boffins, and when Doomlord arrives, they swarm on him. Around the world, a similar scene unfolds as millions of Geminids become billions. Pesticides, flamethrowers, even tanks are ultimately useless. But back in Burley, the hatchlings are not powerful enough to penetrate Vic's alien skin, and they abandon him for other, softer targets. Doomlord is immune. But that is hardly a satisfactory situation. And he takes some of the specimens. As he exits the police lab, the glass window of the room shakes from a new ability of the Geminids, a sonic pulse that shatters the glass. In desperation, Doomlord tells Reeve to evacuate Burley. And as the population flee from their homes, the creatures continue to swarm. Next episode, even I could never hope to destroy them all. Got to hand it to Heinzel. He does really good disasters and you know, maximum panic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I mean we've we've seen this with the Death Lords anyway. It's just it's just another day at the office for him, really. I've also got to hand it to him. Four marks for Johnny Corolla and Doom Lord and you know the, everyone has a character. When Johnny Corolla is harassing Doom Lord, the look on Doom Lord's face <laughs> withering. <laughs> Even with Reeve, maybe I can find a spot for you on my show next week. <laughs> yes. Format, it just gets drolder and drolder. Yeah, yeah. It's a good job he's not wearing his Energizer ring. Well, I was, I was wondering that because you would have thought that might have made short work of a, a Geminid or two. So, and he does have a couple of spares. Yeah, maybe that's another thing is, that, you know, this new media savvy Doom Lord's not averse to the odd flicks when there's a camera around. With his ab showing shirt, <laughs> not ab. With his pec showing shirt. As I say, it's a new Vic. Very much is. This is the first time we've seen by the sacred flame. Holy catchphrase, Batman! Yeah, I think it is. Um, I'm loving the world building or the universe building, I guess, with Knox. And you know, under different management, maybe we'd have seen this in some collection of Doom Lord at some stage, some sort of dictionary of of Noxian proverbs and and language mm. but um leave it to the fans instead we have another cameo from our stunt dead stallion yes and more dog mischief burley has a garrison with tanks that's sort of quite militaristic i don't know how many were around but i imagine maybe they were left over from um again the death lords being in bradfield possibly yeah okay that sort of possibly makes sense a surprising amount of body horror for the lucky six 
I was actually thinking about it with your description, Peter. Mm. It's very aliens, isn't it? But drilling into people and laying eggs and... That's the natural go-to. But yeah, a lot of sort of alien invasion type movies, I guess, you know, the the sludge is either the blob or possibly invasion of the body snatchers, if you want to go there. Uh But yeah, the Geminids are probably taking a pretty hefty leaf of Dan O'Bannon and Ridley Scott's text. Mm. Good stuff. Body horror stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Real body, real body blow stuff. Oh, right. Well, <laughs> speaking of such, Peter. Yes. It's The Fists of Danny Pike, story number two. Script by D. Spence. Art by Jim Burns. Lettering again by Tony Jacob. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Phil. So D. Spence, of course, is... John Wagner. I was so focused on the, the lettering, it pseudonyms evaded me. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike Danny and Punches, yes. it's Reno Nevada, and under a blazing August sun, young Liverpudlian boxing star Danny Pike is facing down world heavyweight champion Alvin Sharkey, the Akron assassin. It's round five, and after getting his second wind, Sharkey is giving Danny a beating, and Pike is down. Issue 120, Danny struggles back up on an eight count. Sharky piles on the pressure and Danny tries to defend himself but punch after punch rips through Danny's defences and with one more powerful blow Danny is poleaxed and crashes to the mat. God, it's not going well. No, it ain't, no. Knocked senseless, Danny struggles back to his feet. He's got nothing left but he pulls himself up through sheer will and determination. Sharky rains down punches but Danny refuses to go down. And at the bell, Danny staggers back to his corner and a concerned Lyle and Arthur. Arthur is ready to throw in the towel, but Danny is adamant he's come this far and he's not going to give up a shot at the title again. As long as he's on his feet, there's still a chance. Grudgingly, trainer Lyle agrees to patch Danny up, but only for one more round. After that, he won't be able to do any more. Mm. (laughs) He's just running on fumes at this stage. Pretty much. Round six starts and Danny crawls back into his defensive shell, conserving every ounce of his precious energy as Sharky's relentless assault continues. But the big man is tiring as well, and as Danny's bloodied left eye closes up, Sharky's taunting face swims into Danny's blurred vision, and our hero strikes. A punch comes right up off the canvas with every last ounce of Danny's strength behind it, and it connects with a bone-juddering impact that could be heard clear across the arena. (laughs) Sharky is down. Yes. And he's not getting back up. It's a knockout. Danny Pike is the new heavyweight champion of the world. I've been quiet during this, but man, this is is such a good finish. It's really tense. Danny's down and he's up and he's down and he's up. Mm. The, The pacing's actually really good. Maybe we're spoiled because we're sort of reading this in a bit of a prog slog, for want of a better word, but... Yeah, loving it. Absolutely loving it. Well, the thing is, it's, um, I think, three minutes around. Mm-hmm. So two or three weeks, it's only six minutes of action. But yeah. <laughs> boy, is a lot of action. Yeah. The crowd goes wild, just as we have. And Danny <laughs> helps the defeated Sharky to his feet, and they share a few kind words. Mm. And the press arrive to ask how a jubilant Danny feels. At the moment, kind of sore. <laughs> After a quick post-match checkup by a doctor... Danny retires to his dressing room where girlfriend Jane is waiting for him and Arthur tells Danny to take a well-deserved break. A few days later, Danny returns to a hero's welcome in Liverpool and meets with his old friend Sergeant Briggs. 
Danny is on top of the world and a very big bus. <laughs> the end. Hooray. Next time, meet the marathon man. Excellent. I might have been a wee bit cool on the series to begin with, but it's one way around, particularly, you know, as it's mm. going for this inevitable rematch with Alvin Sharkey. Oh, so good. Yeah, well, again, who would have thought we'd be raving about a sports strip, Peter? Well, you know, we did enjoy Thunderbolt and Smokey on its own terms, but this is a different thing. Oddly enough, it has the dynacism. I thought you were going to say dinosaurs, but... (laughs) Oh, hang on. Put the brakes on. We're not rushing ahead just yet. The art is great. You can feel the punches. No one's mentioning concussion injuries. No. But yeah, it's no. it's good. And Danny's story, you, you feel for Danny, you get involved. It's been a lovely thing. And Jim Jim Burns' art is timeless. It is. Uh, but you're saying Norman's mentioning concussions, but Jim Burns drawing in all of those swollen eyes and the, every blow, you can feel it. Yes. It's in really good hands. You know, 90s IPC artists... I would struggle to think of anybody who would do it as well as Burns in the 80s mm. and as honestly and as consistently. It's just, mm. it's it's great. It's, it's one thing that I guess that, that sports comic strips demand is that everybody's got a consistent anatomy, a realistic anatomy for, for the sport they're playing. There's got to be a dedication to the realism. And he's the man, yep. you, he's the man you put on the pitch for it. And you had mentioned last episode, and I sort of glossed over it at the time, Peter, Sharky is sort of redeemed as well. Mm. Yeah, for a while then, I thought the rug was going to be pulled from under us, and it was going to actually be (laughs) Sharky winning, because he had to, Mm. uh, you know, he had to defend his title. But no, no, the the better man won. And we know he's a better man, because he was all class with Sharky at the end as well. Definitely. Mm. This isn't the last we'll see of Danny. Danny will return. But as first arcs go mm. this has been pretty cool i've really enjoyed this yeah it was my dad's favorite strip when i was getting eagle as a kid i do remember that about it and a spaceship obsessed me probably didn't see why at the time but i get it now oh no i can i can get that it, it wouldn't have been my favorite at 13 14 either in fact i was reading 2000 ad by then but uh you know at, at the eagle reading age no i think it if anything, maybe it might have just been moving a little bit slowly for me. But, you know, time moves on, you mm. change. It's the Joe Soap phenomenon again. Yes, it is. I I do think that's a, a real thing. And again, what a crime that this can't be collected. Rebellion would have a hit on the hands, I think, with it. Because it's, mm. as they expand their British comics wider net, it is one of the sort of classic style sports strips yes so we're of course working towards another title fight well of sorts yes <laughs> see that one coming. okay speaking of junior bruisers training up for a rematch it's blood fang by f martin candor that's john wagner again okay. art by jim bakey and lettering by steve potter we think we think <laughs> So Blood Fang, the trials and tribulations of a young T-Rex. Or, as we like to call it, the paleo diet for kids. <laughs> yes, indeed. Blood Fang, to remind you, is now motherless after the slaughter of his mother Karka, and he spends his first cold night alone in hunger. The small creatures he catches 
offer very little sustenance for his body, which is still recovering from the recent attack by his own father, Blackheart. Without Kako around, Bloodfang has to teach himself to hunt, but without her finely honed skills, his pursuits always end in exhaustion and defeat. Until he spots a flock of pterosaurs circling a patch of forest, and his foggy reptilian memory is triggered. An old Apatosaurus, weak, and with its brain riddled with worms. Ooh! <laughs> yeah, I know. But which one, Peter? Which one? Probably both of them. <laughs> oof, oof. It's a long way up for a worm to get to. <laughs> it's in a post BSE world, Peter. Yeah, yeah. It, it wanders off blindly to die, um, and as it falls, the pterosaurs descend, and Bloodfang races to join them. But it's not to die at 65 million years ago. Oh, oh, God. Oh, God, please don't keep that up. <laughs> his roars scatter the winged vermin, and he feasts, roaring a challenge as his strength increases. But this challenge is answered by four four-legged scavengers. Sauratomosis. Mm. Now that's that's probably not a very good pronunciation. I'll get there. Now these creatures are from an earlier epoch. They're sort of very muscly, almost alligator-like creatures. Yes. It means deadly jaws, Peter, but put a pin in that. Okay. <laughs> they circle him, and they cut him off from his meal, ripping into the great carcass. They feast for hours, and then rest, bloated and fat from their gluttonous gambit. I've had dinners like that. (laughs) (laughs) Not exactly like that. And watching Bloodfang sees his chance, creeping from the nearby trees. To attack! One Sauracotonus rises to ward him off, but Bloodfang whips it up in his jaws and breaks its neck. And then another. The remainders slink away, cowed by the young Tyrannosaurus. He returns to the carcass, but sees a nearby cave as he rests and drags one of his recent victims off to it. He'll be hungry again soon. And as he sleeps, the pterosaurs return, flitting into the dark, to pick at his teeth while he sleeps with his mouth open. Bloodfang's dreams are haunted by the screams of his mother and the baleful bellows of Blackheart that cause him to gnash his teeth in rage, which gives us another kill of the poor Pteranodon inside his mouth. Oh, I wonder if Bloodfang snores, Peter. Would that make him a snorepod? He'd be a dinosaur, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The cave proves an excellent den, close to fresh water and also a source of fish. Bloodfang reaches his first birthday a bouncing six tons at a strapping four metres in height. At 15 months, he returns to the grassy plain of the Triceratops to hunt, and this time he meets success. Bloodfang is becoming an accomplished killer, becoming stronger every day, and one day he will be a Tyrannosaur to be reckoned with, and the hated Blackheart would see who was the fiercest of them all. And that's Bloodfang. <laughs> Next time, well, we're going to be wrapping up really soon, but uh, I'm loving it. Um, yeah, so Sauronotus, Sauronotus, they're Permian. Yep. They should have died in a great big extinction. Yeah, about, about the Permian's about 200 million years ago. T-Rexes are about 60, 70 million years ago. So it's technically worse than dinosaurs and people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
It's no Jurassic Park. Well, at least they'd have an excuse. Yeah, yeah I know. That's... <laughs> <laughs> well, that, yeah, yeah, that's true. It's all anachronistic. Yeah, um, look, but I'm back to the story itself, though. Really good storytelling. Um, it probably doesn't need to be said, but this is not a dialogue-heavy story. So you're really relying on the description that John Wagner provides. Sorry, Candor provides. Candidly. Which I'm not, I'm not quite reproducing wholesale, but it's there's something to get your teeth into there. <laughs> no pun. <laughs> and, indeed. And the artwork by Jim Bakey. Now, uh, probably like me, Dave, your familiarity with Jim Bakey is skiz and a little bit of Judge Dredd. Uh, more skizzy, but yes. Yeah, it's definitely mm. his his other really good work as far as I know. But, you know, we're probably doing him a great disservice because he's probably been a jobbing artist in lots of things that we just don't yep. see. Quite, yeah. Loving his dinosaurs. So Bloodfang is still pretty much one of the old school back on his hind legs, T-Rex, sort of upright, but still instills a bit of character and really compelling, convincing world. It is, and you're not going to go wrong with dinosaurs for kids. You can't go wrong with dinosaurs for kids. From flesh to this to anything else. To Barney. Yeah, well, maybe not Barney. Although um, I did hear him (laughs) on the radio this morning, so it was freaky. (laughs) Pretty terrible. Anyway, speaking of old one-eye, Peter, here you go. There's a reference for you. <laughs> yes. Who have we got, Dave? Oh, it's One-Eyed Jack. Storied by Notorious GFD, Jerry Finlay Day. Mm-hmm. Well, we think. Art by John Cooper. And not sure about the lettering. Somebody from Valiant or Battle. Uh, Battle, but yes. Previously. Well, actually, no, because in Battle it was typeset. These have all actually been relettered, believe it or not. Ah. Just to remove the occasional blasphemy, I think, and, and allow them to sort of move things around a wee bit. The occasional larger balloon to uh, conceal a cigarette or a stray head or something. Something like that, I think, yeah. Mm. Or, or the, the panels have been cropped slightly because of a slight size format change. But um, Yes, of course. You know, previously on One-Eyed Jack... Ex-dodgy cop, well, actually, no. Ex-cop, still extremely dodgy, <laughs> one-eyed Jack McBain has joined the military organisation, the MIA, battling the not-smog-honest terrorist group, the AOR. Army of revolutionaries or Cornish pirates? You decide. AOR! <laughs> AOR! <laughs> Issue 120. This time, McBain and another agent, Dan Stewart are pulling a graveyard shift guarding an experimental remote-controlled reconnaissance aircraft, the Sky Probe, in an airbase just outside of Hollywood, California, when suddenly a mysterious figure with a flamethrower bursts into the base and sets fire to the drone fuel tanks, blowing it to pieces before escaping through a hole cut in the fence. Now, I don't know about you, Peter. Yeah. If Jack was the bestest big cop ever, I think his skills might have been overestimated if he was the only security they were relying on there. It was probably sold with a great amount of recommendation. Um, yeah. As with any referee till the question, would you hire them again? <laughs> well, <laughs> probably not on the strength of what he gets up to here. Anyway. Pursuing the getaway car, Jack and Dan lose their quarry in a charity carnival procession where throngs of people ogle floats carrying famous film stars and Telly Savalas. 
Oh, but cruel on Telly Savalas. Why not? He's a Telly star. Well, yes. <laughs> Clearly. General Mantis will not be pleased. <laughs> but thanks to some actual proper policing, the team catch a break, and the Flamers Prince were left all over the scene. It's an ex-con called Joey Connors, but he's changed his name and become a famous actor. <gasps> Tony Trent. So the flame is famous. He's, he's, he's a famous flame. He's a fire starter, Peter. He's a twisted fire <laughs> But not only that, he was one of the famous people Jack saw on the float with Telly Savalas. Right. So how do Mantis and Jack and co decide to deal with this miscreant? Yep, they send in a hit squad to a World War II epic film set and arrange an accident wetwork style. So dodgy. So, so dodgy. Under the cover of special effects chaos, Jack lobs a grenade at Trent, blowing the traitor away. Really? No, because Trent isn't dead. They killed the stunt double, and both Jack and Dave are cornered in a ruined town set. Oh, which is just so long as they killed an innocent man. That's all right, then. Well, that's a bonus, not the actual mission objective. Anyway, issue 121. McBain and Stuart are shoved down into a cellar with a grenade lobbed in behind them, and Dave sacrifices himself, shielding Jack from the blast. But mm. the ceiling still comes down, or the roof or the floor above. You're in a basement. Uh, mm. And Jack has to dig his way out. Our anti-hero makes his way back to the main set and starts a diversion by turning on the wind machines before tackling Trent. The two men struggle, and the pumped-up actor seems to have the upper hand. I took fisticuffs at Juilliard, don't you know? <laughs> Jack uses his abs of steel and flips his target straight into the propellers of a wind machine. Idols never meet your fans. <laughs> I'm not the biggest fan, Peter. I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> Will Jack go to his funeral? Nope. He's already going to one for Dave Stewart and another for a nobody called Sammy Mayers. <sighs> And that escalated somewhat. He's the only person around to have heard Trent say that the guy was a nobody. So why he's saying it to Mantis or whoever he's talking to, God knows. Well, again, we could also apply our Tim Talbot, Jake's platoon theory here, Peter. If he's the only person making this report to Mantis, how much of what we're seeing is real? Nothing is real. Nothing is real in One-Eyed Jack. It defies explanation. Dave Stewart, if you're named, but not a series regular, by now I think we know that's as bad as a red shirt on Star Trek. You're toast. Yeah, I was more of an Annie Lennox fan anyway. Speaking of series regulars, though, pizza. Pizza? <laughs> Take a slice out of you. <laughs> Give me the works. McBain and usual regular Coluccia are in Washington, D.C., staking out a Soviet defector, Nevsky, because, you know, Russian, mm. a top nuclear scientists. When suddenly, Nevsky's FBI escort are gunned down by a low-flying helicopter and the Bolshevik boffin is bushwhacked. Oh, niet. Now, they didn't use a niet. They bundled him into a car. <laughs> the pain. Jack manages to shoot down the chopper, but a clumsy Kalucci knocks his aim off the fleeing kidnappers. Fortunately, Mantis and co expected something like this, and suspecting the Russian branch of the OR would try this, 
they placed a tracker into Nevsky's teeth, hoping to locate the not-so-secret base in Alaska. Jack and Kaluchi are in hot pursuit. Shenanigans ensue as the two agents take out enemy patrols before being chased to the secret base, complete with a missile launching pad. But their truck rolls and our heroes are at the mercy of the AOR. Issue 123, they are frog marched into the base's command who proceeds to bifocal splain how the army of revolutionaries plan to fire a missile over the Bering Strait into Russia to smear the good name of the United States of America. Mm, the old own goal tactic. Because that's the worst case scenario outcome to that plan. <laughs> yes. What are they going to do? Paint stars and stripes on the missile. Just so everybody's sure. The villains plan to take their captives to Russia that night by sub for interrogation. Assuming it's still there and not a smouldering ruin. Hmm. But Jack leads a heroic escape by smashing someone's face with a car door. They then steal a truck-mounted rocket launcher and hightail it to a nearby dam, where a rocket fired at their pursuers not only blasts the AOR vehicles, but causes the dam to crack and fracture and finally give way, sending a huge torrent of water and debris crashing into the Rebel missile just as it's about to launch manic style. Mm. No horses, though. No, but, you know, everybody in the valley below... Yeah, I was going to say, Sorry. The, whole, the whole camp is destroyed. Yay, as well as mm. the dam. Yay, as well as everything downstream. Yay. What a washer. Although they have set the precedent, this is in the wilds of Alaska, so downstream. Probably just some kids. (laughs) Stranded kids (laughs) from a school trip. Oh, it's a bit snowy, I don't know. (laughs) We assume the dam serves no municipal function. Maybe the, the Cornish pirates built it. It's not very secret, though, you know. Mm. Jack knows it's one damn thing after another. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yes, I think Jack's missing eye was the one with all the foresight. <laughs> but it's definitely from a war comic. You can see how it's now just all guns and chaos and destruction. Mm, yeah, yeah. And dam busting. And dam busting, exactly, yeah. Next time, a terrorist plan to cripple a nuclear carrier. Speaking of great big disasters... <laughs> I was going to say, going up like a rocket, Peter, yes. It's News Team. In Space. Yeah, News Team in Space. Uh, written by Alan Hebden, art by Bermeo. Now, Bermeo is another sort of ring in artist doing a really, really good version of Jose Ortiz. Well, I think if you're, if you're a Spanish artist, Jose Ortiz is much more of a name. Yeah. You recently did a show on... Uh, the Mega City Book Club. Yes, exactly. Jose Ortiz. I think he's probably actually much more known in Spain and in, in European comics. And we're only just catching on to the goodness that is the work of Eagles Carlos Esquera. Yep, and yet we're just around the corner from where he's really going to get his time to shine. But that's that's jumping ahead. That is just jumping ahead. News team in space and uh, lettering. Uh, thank you, Philip Vaughan, as always. Tony Jacob, question mark? Hmm, that'll do me. So, news team have a new assignment and the golden ticket. They have the chance to be the first press team to cover a space shuttle mission 
big deal. It's the 1980s mm-hmm. from within the craft itself. Mm-hmm. Not bad. No, 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 no. Uh, but it does beg the question, what has Rats actually there? Well, Rats can be there so long as he doesn't bring his box of explosives and guns. I think that'll be fine. And, you know, civilians on the space shuttle, it's a thing. We're a little way away from mm. having a teacher on board. We can cover that later. Yeah. Anyway, of course, news team aren't normal civilians. They are celebrities. And they meet the mission captain, Colonel Jack Calder. But the next morning, CB reveals that she had had an ominous dream that one of them would not return. What is this, a collector story? Yeah. Well, just watch out for arrows, I think. Yeah. That's right. An yeah. arrow. Jerry reassures her, NASA have never lost an astronaut in space. They're mm. hardly likely to start now. Even now, it's still sort of technically correct. It's true. They at that stage and still to date, they have not lost an astronaut in space. Yes. Although I am reminded of that line in Halo Jones: forty percent of troops don't see combat. <laughs> yeah. And the rest have their parachutes open. It's not that bad. But even as they launch, fellow teamster Rats expresses misgivings. Maybe that's what he's there for, Dave. Mm. But they're eventually in orbit, weightless, and their space station rendezvous is in sight, absolutely whistling through. They dock, there's more weightlessness, which Kurt films, but Jerry spots something through a window, an old satellite on a collision course with the station. It strikes, and before you can say, hey gravity, the vessel depressurizes, a pipe rats is clinging onto breaks, and he drifts free out into space. Next episode, luckily, Colonel Calder and Jerry coach rats as he falls towards the docked shuttle and he reaches for it, dislodging a few ceramic heat tiles. Eh. <laughs> Don't worry about it! <laughs> See recent Eagle Holiday special, 1984, but is saved, at least. The shuttle, under computer command, makes its way to the stricken station. They check the shuttle for damage to make sure she can return to Earth safely. And a lot of tiles have been lost. And oxygen is low, but nine astronauts could make it home. Trouble is, there are ten now. Calder offers to stay, and when Jerry offers to replace him, the colonel throws the reporter off. But Jerry spots a jetpack. See also a recent Eagle issue, and leaves the station. Yay, Bruce McCandless backpack, never forget. <laughs> and leaves the station, saying he won't return until everyone else, the colonel included, is en route. Calder acquiesces and Jerry's just bought himself the loneliest exclusive of his life. Mm. It's a gamble. The shuttle has no guarantee of a safe return itself, but under Calder's control, a shaky landing at LAX is successfully completed. Yeah, it's all action, that landing. Photos on the Facebook page, people. It's it's cinematic. (laughs) Don't see it happening in the photo strips. No, Jerry may have saved the crew. As they're brought out, CB is asked by ground press how it feels to be back. I'd feel a whole lot better if Jerry was with us. And at Mission Control, Kurt and Rats watch Jerry's guided tour of the stricken space station be relayed back to them with grim humour. However, a replacement shuttle is 12 hours away, and Jerry has enough oxygen for only 15. It's down to the nail. If there's a delay, but suddenly a new broadcast, not a news team exclusive, interrupts. The Soviet Union has just announced the launch of their own shuttle. Go, Ivan, go! Jerry watches from space, unable to shake the feeling that something is about to go terribly wrong. 
and the story is set to take quite a twist. Yeah. Next episode, Behind the Forbidden Door. I've got to be honest, Peter, since various production issues have waylaid this episode, I've actually watched the f- most of the first season of a series called For All Mankind. Yep. About an alternative history of space exploration. And the action in it reminds me of this. We, we may sort of give News Team a big knock because they have sort of veered from their, their remit recently. But it's not a bad return to the edutainment for the 80s kids kind of thing. There's lots of words in it, and there's some big info dumps, but they are interesting and relevant to the topic. Yeah, to its credit, News Team has tried to be, if not contemporary, contemporaneous. Mm. It's had Middle Eastern stories, it's had Eastern European stories, it's had Central American stories, all of which have made up some of the big news stories of the 1980s. And and the space shuttle's no different. Mm, um, mm. And, and, and you know, we might got to sort of go, really? You know, with a space shuttle being ready in 12 hours and the Soviet Union suddenly being willing to fling something into space as well. But I think there, they're sort of at least playing with the expectation that here we have a space program which was celebrated as being reusable and nimble. So... Why not? Let's gloss over the fact it took a week to wheel everything out of the big shed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Again, we're sort of playing with maybe 20 minutes into the future, possibly. Yeah, yeah. But not not a big 20 minutes. It's still space. No, no. Yeah, yeah. It's 20 minutes they've saved by going through space so very, very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Although Kurt is actually taking shots out of the window with lightning speed. I don't know if the... Fasten your seatbelts lights have gone off yet. <laughs> no, no. Uh, again, license, license. Yeah, this is probably news team doing what it was supposed to be doing all no. along. Yeah. No. You know, this is the send-off story, so... Spoilers! Well, it's the send-off story, everybody. We've got a big clearing the decks in about one month's time, so, yeah. Speaking of disasters in a science fiction again. theme, Peter, yes. <laughs> it's Dan Dare. With a story we call, it's only Ragnarol, but we like it. A story, <laughs> maybe by Barry Tomlinson, but we'll get back to that. Art by Carlos Cruz, and letters by Tom Frame. Previously on Dan Dare. A group of boring aliens are using drilling machines to trigger disasters all over the world. Sending Dan Dare to the tip-top secret underground defence HQ not realising that the base itself was the next alien target. When suddenly it happened, photos on the Facebook page, (laughs) a mysterious alien drilling device rips through the floor of the lab. Dan calls for an immediate evacuation and everyone, including Robo-1, bails up and out using escape pods, which while neat, seem like a very expensive alternative to stairs. And not a particularly secret exit route either. No, no, you, you go straight through your shopping mall or something with that missile. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's not all bad news. Now Dan's team know what to look for, and they can track the drillers and soon triangulate on an isolated spot in the middle of the Pacific, which coincides, possibly, looking at the very fuzzy scale on the thing with the Pacific Pole of Inaccessibility, the Nemo Point. Also, H.P. Lovecroft's uh, Relayer. It's a spaceship graveyard, the Pacific Gaia, that kind of thing. Okay. It's your rainy day Bermuda Triangle, in other words. 
pretty much, and we've squeezed more out of looking at that panel than probably the rest of the story merits, but there you go. <laughs> they quickly locate the alien's island, and Dan plans a one-man assault, and that one man will be him. Ta-da! Meanwhile, on the island, in a scene very reminiscent of Darth Vader's performance review visit to the new Death Star, a gold-plated, volpig-faced alien overlord warns of the incoming arrival of Ranagol. Ranagol. Sometimes it's Ranagol, sometimes it's Ranagol. Mm. Your mileage may vary. Not the biggest editorial issue we have to deal with these stories. <laughs> no. He's an extraordinary fellow. He's a Ranagol. With a brain like Yuri Geller, he's a Ranagol. He'll break those stupid humans in a probably Tomlinson script. He's not just a troll, he has no skull, he's Ranagol. Ask your GP if Ranagol is right for you. <coughs> Side effects may include bladder weakness, loss of appetite, and bloating. Yes. But back to the bloating. And lack of cranial stability. Because <laughs> Ranagol is your classic cyclopean brain in a jar. But with the twist, there is no jar. <laughs> so, this giant brain is carried to the island base on a golden platter by his retinue of aliens. Basically a giant brain floating chair. Coincidence. Probably not. Anyway, <laughs> ready for his infiltration mission, Dandy and Robo Wanaru use a mini-sub to sneak up onto the island base. But, just as they're scuba diving to shore, a gigantic shark leaps out of the water and eats them. Yeah. <laughs> and then nothing happens for a week. Because this is where it gets interesting. There's this huge cliffhanger at the end of the episode where this big shark leaps out of the water and there's no next time caption, as far as mm. we can tell. And mm. the following week, the story just jumps a whole episode and it's revealed in a box out that the shark was a robot guard and Dan and Robo One were now captured by the aliens. Mm. And we can only conclude that IPC, for some very strange reason, thought a story where a gigantic shark eats the heroes could potentially be problematic. Well, plot-wise, yeah, you've got a bit of an issue, but I would say this is the second time this month it's not your story, Sharky. <sighs> I think it's more of an issue of the legacy of Hookjaw, especially if it's going to be lots of fangs and gnashes on the cover, potentially. Yeah, it's an interesting idea because... I find myself casting around for what's going on at the same time or what has gone on with Scream. Mm. And that wouldn't be scared of having Nash's on the front cover and probably did have the odd pair of maybe not sharks, but probably a shark on the back page, actually. Yeah, but by this stage, has Scream gone? Scream has gone. Look, look I, I would say... Eagle is not Scream, so mm. maybe they are distancing themselves from being that sort of comic. And even when the two comics merge, man, I really wasn't expecting we were going to get into this already. I would say that Scream's banner, mm. for a multitude of reasons, is the smaller banner. Mm. So, yeah, whether you tie that in with the disappearance of a shark <laughs> from the front cover would have been a great cover day, wouldn't it? I really want to know if the art actually exists and it was pulled. Mm. This is the most blatant bit of comic book censorship I think we'll ever see in Eagle. Yeah, lack of cruise control. Ooh. 
What I was actually going to say is not too far off that, because, you know, we've been saying, oh, we assume this is a Barry Tomlinson story, but surely Barry being, you know, editor-in-chief type person he was, yep. would have known, hey, that's not going to fly, and you wouldn't have had such an abrupt jolt in the story. Maybe the explanation is a bit more prosaic, and, and it's just, we cut it down for time. Yeah, but why cut that issue? Did they lose the artwork? Maybe. Possibly. It, it, it would be really interesting to know. Answers yeah. on the on an envelope on the Facebook page, people. Anyway, yeah. hmm. an issue's worth of Dan Deer seems to get pulled for whatever reason. And after this jump in the timeline, <laughs> Robo-1 makes a daring escape attempt, but is chased down by an alien drone and sent racing back into the jaws of the Robo-Shark and is left waiting outside the mysterious island pyramid while Dan is carried in, disinfected, and taken before Renegal. Pyramids on an island, Dave, it is the keys of Marinus. <laughs> but again, if you wanted to cut an episode, why didn't you cut that one? Because that was a whole episode. I think somebody was quite keen on their new R2-D2 like robot chum. Mm, maybe. Anyway, in issue 123 to round out this sorry tale of woe, Dan confronts the giant brain and proceeds to insult it Mekon tactics style by making a joke about its good looks. But the Mekon, sorry, Renegal, isn't phased by this human emotion and proceeds to brainsplain his evil plan. Disasters, ultimatum, humanity surrenders, blah blah. It's a sound plan. Dan tries a more physical response and charges the alien menace, but Renegal zaps him unconscious. Meanwhile, Robo-1 uses a mirror to distract the surveillance drone, causing it to crash into the side of the pyramid and rushes to save Deer, but is trapped in a layer of fluorescent goo. Mm. Renegal issues his ultimatum to the world. One more disaster is on the way as a final warning, then humanity must surrender, or next time the death toll will be in the millions. Mm. <laughs> next time, the great killing. It's more of a curiosity this month, really. Yeah, I find if I lean into the B-movie-ish aspect of it, and last time we were talking about sort of, you know, the Jerry Anderson Thunderbirds mm. angle, mm -hmm. there's something to take away. Is it Dan Dare? I don't know. But, you know, <laughs> Alien looks good. Carlos Cruz is good. Oh, no, definitely. Yep, yep. He'll get recognition in this episode elsewhere. Yes. So, that's all right. I get the feeling, though, with something like you know the the Pacific Gyre, that that sort of backup Bermuda's Triangle. If Pat Mills were writing this, he would have made a lot more of that. Oh yes, again, we've pulled it all out of a picture on the screen, you know, mm. a, a background shot saying, "Oh, this is where the base is," and going, yeah. "Oh, that looks interesting." It's not something that seems particularly relevant in the script. Well, casting our mind back, he was pretty proud of that base in the Grand Canyon, but. This is a strip which is not necessarily playing with the same continuity, so... No. Well, put a pin in that for next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of ongoing continuities, Peter... It's regular features. Let's start with best cover. Having just covered Dan Deere, you've got your choice of four Dan Deere covers. Do you have a pick? <laughs> yeah, I do. My favourite is the one where Dan Deere gets eaten by Hookjaw. No, no. No, shoot. I want that cover. Oh, I want that cover too, but you can't always get what you want. Said the philosopher Jagger. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, what's your backup? The big drill, that's the first one. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got Robo One faffing about. Mm hmm. And then I think another one of Robo One 
faffing about. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Renegal. Yeah, Dear and the Renegal, I suppose, is the best cover. You betcha. It's not a shark, Peter. Big Drill is fine. Um, mm. I won't be a bore. <laughs> um, oh, but, um, <laughs> but I do like the Dear Renegal face-off for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. Renegal looks ooky and booky and, and I don't know what that word means. And uh, very B-movie-ish, je approve. Mm-hmm. He's got the tentacles. He's he's a bit H.G. Wells Martianish, I suppose. Yes, no, I'll give it that. Yeah, yeah. The, yep, the, yep, the yep. big brain with the single eye, and he's got lots of sort of bubbling pipes and things all around him. And as you said, he's on a golden plinth. Very handsome plinth. Yes, someday his plinth will come. People's plinth. He's got one of his guards in those adorable moon boots behind him. My attention also goes to Dare, who's shown and profiled, has the patented Carlos Cruz colouring ginger hair mm. I don't know which universe that puts him in probably not the Oliver Frey or the Ian Kennedy and weirdly the profile makes it look a little bit like a Ballard and Nelly it's almost like they're related Peter but they're probably not <laughs> I don't think Cruz is an Italian name no 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 the Dandier is related to oh, Dandier who's Dandier I see. I see. Dan Deer, oh. because they're Dandier the Maxima Culpa yes of course but, but for that reason for the Ballard and Alley for the Oogity Boogity Aliens I am giving this the never before afforded badge of Space Spinner would probably approve of this even when Robo One's faffing about he can be doing so quite dynamically they do have those big sort of early 2000 AD splash story news page covers yeah. Fair enough. Cool. And maybe that's the missing link. You know, maybe this is a story which might have been a little bit better in the first 100 issues of 2018. Thinking of the various alien invasion disaster stories, and they yes. would laugh at Renegal. Because <laughs> <laughs> he is a little bit twee. Sorry. He, he, he wouldn't last five seconds in front of Bill Savage, is what you're saying. <laughs> no. <laughs> droll, droll, Renegal. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have an ad of the month? It's quite an exciting month because, of course, it's the Northern Hemisphere summer. So you've got a lot of tentpole movies for this month. You do, and you have the Olympics and various other things mm-hmm. coming up and Return of the Jedi action figures. and Star Trek, The Search for a Spock, and Supergirl. I don't remember her eyes being quite that... Uh, quite that blue? Almost like she's a Spice Girl. Haha. <laughs> Dude <laughs> reference. Uh, I see. Uh, she won't be the first superhuman Kryptonian that uh, people will muck around the face of. We say back up a bit. Add of the month, Peter. The Lone Wolf Adventures by Joe Diva are given a page. Ah, oh, man, after my own heart. Because that's the other runner-up in, in this month is a bit of a pet project: the slow introduction of role-playing games into mm. the Eagle World. And and it may not get any more than this. But yeah, we've got the Lone Wolf series. Joe Diva and Gary Chalk. Gary Chalk has a, a long and noble career with fighting fantasy, with Games Workshop. Mm. And, and White Dwarf and so forth so yep loved his work the Talisman game again and Matchbox's Golden Quest yes which had me sort of looking for that they, they were licensed Advanced Dungeons and Dragons figures I think ah okay yeah everybody had a go at it and this was Matchbox of the, the Rinky Dinky Toys um, having another crack at comic tie-ins or something like that okay shout out to Mr Jim Moon of course in his recent Microgoria episodes on the Land Raider Matchbox mm. toy and it's tie-in with Judge Dredd 2000 AD and so forth highly recommended but as for the Golden Quest 
the fact that I had to really look for it on the internet, I don't think it really went anywhere. Although, having said that though, you know, miniatures and modelling are still around today. Yes, yes indeed. It does make me wonder what a fantasy strip in the hands of Eagle might have looked like. It's the genre they never really went with. I mean, you could sort of squint and say, maybe Tower King, but probably not. I can't think of one, but again, we've got a fair way to go in the run. Mm. But uh, the fantasy genre is more something that Amp Store might touch upon. Or Yeah, that's the closest you're going to get, I think. Maybe. You know more than I do. So. You couldn't have done a fantasy in the photo days, apart from Tower King, as you said, because it was all drawn. Yeah. But I, I suppose there's fantasy horror to things like House of Damon and the nightmares that Max will create and stuff. Yeah, well, well, that just underlines who I would want to be doing that fantasy strip. Yes. Get our favourite Spanish artist in. And of course, with other regular features, we've got things like The Lucky Six, Dave Gunston of Auckland, New Zealand, represent. Hooray! I've got a question though. What did the Lucky Six do when they double up in a photo? Because you get what something like a fiver. Mm. So if you're in the photo with your best mate or your sibling or your mum, do you have to split that fiver or do you get ten pounds? No, it's each photo that gets printed is a fiver. Uh, I think the wording is high so. to nothing. But speaking of coming on in force, Peter. <laughs> yes, we've got a supplement. Action force. Yes, we have another Action Force promotion with Eagle, uh, this time with a micro-comic, which is just a little who are Action Force and a poster. And if you were in the right place at the right time, you got an Action Force free action figure. What's the story behind this date? Did you get this if you were in New Zealand or Papua New Guinea or Australia or India or Rhodesia or any of those places? Well, funnily enough, while we do have the typical offer not available to overseas readers, I actually got one of these. Ah. I think some arrived in the country and some news agents got maybe one or two and they were put aside for people with regular subscriptions or something. I don't quite know how it worked, but I ended up with one. And I know I had nice. a friend who, uh, Scott Witherall, shout out, hello, at school who, I believe he had a relative working for the New Zealand distributors. I don't know if it was Gordon and Gotch or who. And he got one as well. Mm. But I actually got the, the Red Beret Commander, like what in the ad. Poster zine included, of course, with all the figures on it and a rather tasty-looking skull sort of X-Wing fighter spaceship. Yes, which I think was in the previous comics we had. Right. But looks way cool. Straight out of the pages of Games Workshop. Well, no, there's only one skull, Peter, now. Games Workshop would have at least four more yes, tacked far, onto the side. That's, that's far too restrained for Games Workshop. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much it for me, except got to have a reader's joke, Dave. Uh, why does Cinderella play a rotten game of football? Because she's always running away from the ball. Oh, oh, that's good, Dad. But the actual answer is because her coach is a pumpkin. Right. Yeah. Speaking of short and light on any sense, Peter. <laughs> it's the Amstor computer. Our first story is Galactic Guys. It's story number 1999. Possibly the price as well. Programmed by Michael Mumsford <laughs> of Ringwood. And it's actually written by C. Potter. Art by J. Stokes. Stokes. Jeff and Colin are our protagonists. They get invitations to Tim Bates' fancy dress party. And they're in Colin's bedroom and inspired by the posters on his wall, Mick Jagger, the philosopher, and E.T., they decide to go as... Aliens! However, Colin's going to be late, so Jeff goes ahead. 
as a Silurian from TV's Doctor Who. Woo! Diddly dumb, indeed. Old school Silurian. Let's just be clear. None of this eighties rubbish. Yeah, with the hosepipe nose yes. and everything. That, that. Oh, geez, Silurian. In the car, he spots another alien coming up the drive. A sort of bat-faced cousin, it with a dodgy communicator and a taste for plastic forks. He calls Jeff Earthlet. So, is Colin Tharg? No. Colin's Colin, as we find out later when he calls later on to apologise for not actually coming to the party. (gasps) What's that? Jeff, on the phone, looks around out his window and there's a UFO rising into the sky. Cue air horns. Yes. So is Colin played by Colin Baker? Oh, well, somebody was baking up on this one. <laughs> he actually looks like, I can't work out, Brian Cant or someone. There's a look to him. Uh, the photo's on the Facebook page, people. Yeah, yeah. What you got? What you got, Dave? What you got? Thinking of things you should know, Peter, mm. see if you can spot this one coming. The Future That Never Was from issue 121, story number 22,058. Selected by Darren Arno of Well and Garden City, which is in London. Story by Jay Trevelyan, art by Boyks. Boyks. It's April 1912, and somewhere over southern England, a German airship has been hijacked by two American agents. The craft is out of fuel, and the jury pilot crash dives it towards the rocky hills below, and the spies jump out with their stolen papers before the zeppelin crashes like a fat seal on fire. Oh, the huge manatee, Peter. Oh, The agents make their way to Southampton with the German war plans and board a ship back to America. It's the Titanic. Mm. At least they weren't time travellers. I'll give them that. Yeah. Why not post the plans, Peter? <laughs> Why not go to your embassy? Yeah. Bahamut. I mean, they could have cut the story a whole lot shorter by making the airship the Hindenburg. Well, that's that's the plot to the movie Hindenburg, though. Yes, which I have very fond and scared memories of. It traumatised me as a kid, particularly. Spoilers, when it crashed. (laughs) Ah, moving along. Story number three is Tomorrow's World. World, world. Number 578, programmed by Matthew Russell of Great Edston. Written by Fred Baker of Crow Street Comp. And art by Ron Turner of The Collector. The story you could also call Tomb with a View. Great Edstone. Young Barry Loader slept in the tent in his front yard and he wakes to an empty world. No mum, empty cars in the middle of the road, a school bereft of students and staff. It's the rapture. Ah, (laughs) it's not the rapture. An airy humanoid alien composed entirely of whirlwind appears and explains to young Barry that Earth's bits and pieces, that Earth's bits and pieces have been miniaturized and moved across the cosmos by the other aliens before a build-up of pressure from its core makes it explode. I know how it feels. After that explanation, Barry wakes and finds his mum and tells her his weird dream. All the while... Uh, he's looked on by the whirlwind alien. The humans never realise that they are in a new galaxy on a double-ringed planet. Everything is playing out as it was planned. Another civilization is saved. Mm. Story too intense for you, Dave? That was intense. Yeah, should have stayed <laughs> intense. Yes. <laughs> what about all the fish, Peter? And what about everything else? Did they miniaturise the microbes? What if they dropped the 
<laughs> Did they actually pick up the missile silos and the shopping mall? <laughs> I think they did everything. It looks nice. I mean, you're never going to mistake Ron Turner's artwork for anybody else's artwork. No, you're not. It's a signature look. Mm. Is it Ravelox, Peter? I know we've talked about Colin Baker and Silurians. Mm. They've moved it halfway across the galaxy. Is it Ravelox? It's something locks. Goldilocks, more like, yeah. Never mind the Goldilocks. That's what I was thinking of. What's your story? Speaking of rubbish stories, Peter... <laughs> Rubbish in issue 123, story number 2574, mm. selected by Joseph Smirthwaite mm-hmm. of Sunderland. Story by Sign of Quality, no one's admitting to it. Uh, by John Cooper? No. No? No. Who did the artwork for Sergeant Streetwise? I reckon John Vernon. Oh, okay. So have you told the story yet? What story? <laughs> Uh, really taken to the cleaners on this one. Oh! John Vernon, yes, who did Sergeant Streetwise. It has that look to it. You just, I couldn't put my finger on it. You're quite right. Mm. In a one-off one page with no dialogue, humanity despoils the earth with its wasteful ways until the intergalactic refuse disposal unit bins the entire planet. But not the strip. No. It's mercifully short. Yes. Very average Amstor computer run this month. Nothing particularly great or memorable. And that's the Amstor computer. On to the next story. Oh, brother. Oh, brother, indeed. Speaking of brothers, it's the brothers. <laughs> oh, late night. Uh, story by Scott Goodall and art by Vanyo. So, mm-hmm. the story so far, on the run from pretty much everybody, young Pete Tyler and his hideously disfigured brother Bob are... Uh, in the wilds of Exmoor, taking a shortcut through a rocky pass when young Pete despairs. The Viper has struck a karate chop to the neck. So the Viper is some sort of assassin hunter person who's been tracking the boys for reasons unknown. Cause government secrets. We assume. Bob sees Peter's abandoned pack and tracks his footprints. So much for a sneaky detour, but blunders straight into a deadfall constructed by the assailant. 10 metres into a rapid underground river. He's likely dead. 10 metres into an underground river? Constructed by the assailant? Well, I guess it was a, it was a sinkhole? Covenant? Yeah, I know. I'm being very facetious, Peter. You Please are being on. very facetious. Don't let me disrupt you, I'm sorry. A child may have died. <laughs> Peter sees this and asks who the viper could be to do this, but his captor draws a weapon instead. Someone with a job to do. A job that's almost finished. Peter looks up. A pen gun? No! No! Now we pause at this stage, just for me to observe. When I first read this, I misread the pen gun line and was wondering why he was talking about a penguin. (laughs) Maybe he needs to pick up the pace. (laughs) Well, the Viper has many secrets, but I wasn't expecting that twist. It's Wallace and Gromit, isn't it? <laughs> but now, hang on a minute. Well, the note I've got here is, how the heck does Peter know that's a pen gun and that the Viper doesn't want him to sign some forms or something? Well, it looks very blade-like. We'll go with it. Is this the whole of logic we're going to die on? This stories? <laughs> yeah. Pete stops on the, on the Viper's snakeskin shoes. They have snakeskin gloves, too. Are they all snakeskin? I don't know. 
uh, dodges the blade, but as he struggles with his bonds, he's felled with a kung fu stun kick and booted into the dead fall after his brother, down into the chasm peat falls, into the black rapids. But a hairy fraternal arm is there for him, and Bob guides him out of the water and up out of the cave. Now, Peter. Yes? I've been to Waitomo, which is a cave system in New Zealand, dear listener. And I've been to Wookie Hole. Nice. Which is a cave system in the UK, dear listener. Thank you for the clarification. Yeah, not not some sort of bizarre fan event in Florida. (laughs) So I have to ask the question, where are they getting their light from in this pit they are traversing? Minerals in the rock are refracting the sunlight coming through the hole of the deadfall and lighting their way. It's a miracle of nature. Oh, okay. Random biophosphorescence. That's what they used to use on Doctor Who all the time. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, lost my place. Um, <laughs> when they emerge, the moor is empty, but they soon find a car that could only be the Vipers. And Peter has a plan. With his own knife, he punctures a tire, and Bob climbs a nearby tree to get a drop on the assassin when he returns. Pete watches from the bushes close by. Sure enough, a hooded figure approaches in the rainstorm that follows. Bob strikes, but the viper's senses are sharper, and they deflect him. Kia! As a snakeskin boot descends on Bob's throat, Pete spots a nearby wasp nest, and he bats the mass into the viper's face. While the viper is distracted, he swats again, this time knocking the viper out. It's the bees, Peter! It's the bees! It's not the bees day because the wasps mysteriously disappear. And Peter pulls back the viper's hood to discover <gasps> the viper is a woman! It's a beautiful lady! It's a lady! No, that's your cliffhanger. Yeah, h- how did no one notice until now? I mean, does she have a very masculine voice? I've got to say, this is one of the things that sort of annoys me about the written story, whether it's a comic strip or a book. I'm one of those readers who casts characters in their head for mm-hmm. appearances and, and casts sounds and locations and everything. It really, really annoys me when you find out halfway through <laughs> the story that somebody has a lisp or they suddenly don't change nationalities or gender. Anyway, mm. there's your cliffhanger. So, the boys' minds see the Zaragatha film fatale, who nearly put them both to death, and they find a card in her parker. It's the address of a London office, possibly the HQ of her secret organisation, which has cards. Going through a lady's parker. Mm. Mm. Pete remembers that Dr. Atherton, the only man who could cure Bob, is due from Canada in a matter of weeks. Strange association. And he devises a plan. The only one he can think of. They could hide in a coastal cave with the Viper as their prisoner until it all blows over. Hmm. Bob thinks it's risky, and he's right. Not as risky as firing nukes at Russia. Let's give it that. No, no, but this is a different story. On the one hand, it's a stupid idea. They fix the car and remember his father's driving lessons. <laughs> Pete hits the road in a high-speed lurch. But in the back of the car, the Viper, with all the rage of a wasp-stung, concussed, and identity-compromised assassin, she has nothing to lose, and she stabs the accelerator with her walking stick and laughs maniacally as she, the boys in the car, hurtle over towards an oncoming cliff. Now that's a cliffhanger. (laughs) Next time, a long sheer drop into the sea. The way you were describing it, I just couldn't help think of the last episode of The Young Ones. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. no, Cliff! <laughs> Look out, Cliff! 
It's very silly. There's lots of things happening though, and it's small scale compared to Danny Pike and Doomlord, but it's racketing along towards a cliff. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that Vanyo's doing it. It has always made me think of the hand, mm. and now the brothers is taking an equally bizarre direction. <laughs> I don't get the whole idea for the Vipo. If she's been assigned by the government, why does the government want to kill the boys? They had some hand wavium six issues ago. I can't remember the logic, but I oh. remember us going, huh? <laughs> yep. You what now? Handbrake yeah. turn. Yeah. Which is what they needed right now, ironically enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah they really do. <laughs> anyway, that's the end of the brothers for this episode. And speaking of kids coming to an end. It's the final bell for Crow Street Comp. Yes, indeed. Story by Fred Baker, art by Rex Archer. Previously on Crow Street Comp, everything else happened, phantom striking, random elephants running away, etc, etc, <laughs> black helicopters. If you're starting now, you're just too damn late. <laughs> you really missed the bell. On their final junket as students, the kids visit Kew Gardens and take five to discuss their future adult lives. Sugar Ray wants to sail away to a desert island, but his schoolmates soon remind him he'd be missing out on electricity, shops, discos, football, and school and exams. Yay! I'd like Sugar Ray to sail away to a desert island, or I think we need to indulge this. On the way back home, the teacher Babbitt tells them about how life used to be harder, and we get what can only be described as a kids these days montage, as Babbitt explains the hardships of his father's youth, caning, the blitz, rationing, no TV. Why does Babbitt not have these memories for himself? Because Babbitt's maybe mid-twenties? Yeah. He's a hippie. He doesn't have any memories. <laughs> the 60s were all a big blur for him. Because it's Crow Street Comp, there is something a little wonky with time. Yes. But Babbitt's dad was in the Blitz. You know, it sort of works out if Babbitt was born in the mid-60s and he's just graduated as a teacher. He could have been born in the 50s, which would make him around about 30, early 30s. Yeah, but that would mean he was born when his dad was in his late teens, which is all possible. Just the numbers are a little tight somewhere, that's all. I think there's a note in one of the early strips that this is Babbitt's first teaching job. Right. Kids have it easy these days, Peter. Natch. Babbitt also offers Clobber an interest-free loan for his buying and selling van. He'll match half the cost if Clobber can reach the first half. And Clobber, as always, has a plan. Yeah. The next day, Clobber is holding a raffle, 20p a ticket for a new bike. And he doesn't need £100, only 10 Any other questions, you need to talk to my cashier, Mr. Creeper here. <laughs> and by lunchtime, after a bit of edutainment with a calculator, Clobber and Creeper have enough money to buy an old grandfather clock, which, like the underpants gnomes, they will sell for a profit. Yes, I understand their reverence. Meanwhile, Sugar Ray and Crackers Kent are getting a last bit of teasing in with Baby Bristow, claiming he isn't brave enough to deal with stroppy animals if he wants to be a vet. And to prove their point, they throw his school cap over a fence with a large beware of the dog sign. <sighs> pricks i guess with clobber becoming more of a central character you still sort of need some they're not bad guys they're just irritants yeah 
But Bristow braves the marauding Mastiff by brandishing his blazer with bullfighter's bravado, and he emerges from behind the fence with his hat intact. His school coat, not so much. His mum will have a fit. It's not like he needs it for much longer. As you might mention, Pete, after <laughs> nearly 75 issues, mm. starting along with Doom Lord 2, there's some perspective for you. Yeah, yeah. All that resentment that has been festering since the 3D issue finally explodes and Bristow shoves crackers into a nearby canal. <laughs> and while it may be nearby, Peter, fucking hell, Peter, fucking hell. <laughs> You've broken me. <sighs> well, there's problems now, Peter, because for someone who wants to join the Merchant Navy, crackers can't swim. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, nearby, Clobber and Creeper are shifting their clock on a market barrow because they don't have their van just yet. And they hear their classmate crying out for help. Quick as a flash, they wheel their cart into the waterway and float it, and the clock, lifeboat style, out to the stricken boy. Can they save him? No. Uh, yes, they can. Oh, and they do. Wheeling a waterlogged Kent to shore, they almost lose the clock in the process, which only goes to show, Peter, soggy crackers are a waste of time. <sighs> the soaking doesn't appear to have done the antique much good, but a pragmatic clobber muses they were going to have to fix it up anyway. This is interesting, but okay, carry on. Yeah, no, 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 the boys are all pals again, Bailey having finally proven his mettle, and the next day at school, clobber brings in the bike for the raffle, and tickets sell like hotcakes. But as you say, yes, there was one final, we're all in this together, lads. Although mm. clobber is slightly acerbic about it, given he had mm. to fix everything. But the popularity of the raffle draws the notice of the Queen of Dragons, Ms. Bud. When the grand prize draw is announced at the end of the day, it is Bristow who wins the bike, and the ever-generous clobber awards a bonus prize, a bedside light won by Boo Boo, so she can read herself to sleep. How times have changed, Peter. No Playstations in your room, no. No cell phone. Ooh, my, my kids are lucky if they get an audiobook. <laughs> But suddenly, Mrs. Bud arrives to put a stop to the raffle, demanding everything, including the cash, be returned. A traditional Crow Street riot ensues, kids versus teachers style. And in the final episode, Mrs. Bud will not be moved, and Clobber reluctantly has to return everyone's ticket money. But he declines to take back the prizes. He is a man of his word. And as the end of the term draws nearer and nearer, but because it's Crow Street, no actual time frame is ever actually referenced, Bristow worries about his grades for university. Chill out, kid, you're only 15. <laughs> oh, well, you know, this is... Look, we'll come to why he might be a little bit concerned about this. And Clobber displays a fine head for figures as he works out the daylight robbery labour rates for skivvying at a local law firm. Mm. Right on, Clobber, right on. Yeah. I remembered that for a very long time. Unit rate analysis, Clobbergate style. Quote us on the Facebook page. He's got hidden depth to that lad. He does. Or he should be buried in something. But no worries. He and Creeper have fixed their clock and have money for the van without Babbitt's loan. The final day arrives and the kids have clubbed together to buy Mr. Babbitt an electric razor. It's nearly as 80s cool as a digital watch, Peter. <laughs> and as Babbitt and the headmaster watch 5B depart, the young teacher muses they might not have been the brightest or the best, but he will miss them. A sentiment we can all share. 5B rule okay! Next time, Mannix returns in a deadly adventure. <laughs>
And that's Crow Street Comp. And that's Crow Street Comp. And a very pragmatic sort of ending. Hmm. I think I would have liked more on the ending. Do you think it was rushed? Only in the sense that, the you know, if you think about it, your last school term is lots of study exams bye-bye. And they sort of glossed over all the exams and everything. Yeah, well, when I mean, the whole, as we've said several times, the time dilation in the strip is like nothing else. You want to have the fun of being a school kid without referencing any classes or tests, because three pages of kids sitting at a desk scribbling notes in silence isn't good copy. No, fair enough. Your school years are not marked by class days. They're marked mm. by holidays and events and yeah. weekends and the, the friends you meet along the way. Which I guess is what Crow Street Comp is about. School trips, that's the other thing as well. The, you know, the time you rode on an elephant and got rescued by a helicopter while in a Costa del Plonk or something like that. But yeah. in terms of a wind-up, I think the strip really sort of... Halfway along, it decided that it supposed two main characters, Fatso and Frankenstein, weren't the main characters and that it was Clobber and Creeper. Yeah. Well, Frank and Fats haven't been around, apart from background character appearances, for a couple of episodes. Yeah, Parsons has had more panel time than, yeah. than Frankenstein. And, you know, Frankenstein's just yet another one to add to the list of school kids who disappear in the strip, like Madge. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not even sure he actually appears... I think he does at the end. The problem is he looks a bit like crackers. Yeah. Too much of a resemblance. And uh, who was it? The Alan? Alan Bates, the only normal kid in school. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gone burgers. Gone. We sort of joked about purgatory and stuff. I wonder if the whole time dilation thing, because just what you said, Crow Street is the memory of school days. It's not an accurate representation of anything. Hmm. It's like the reminiscing of, oh, and then this happened, and then that happened. But that sort of makes it a bit weird as well. I'm, I mean, I'd never go back to Crow Street Comp and say, yeah, that was me growing up, because it's probably Fred Baker's memories of the 1960s, 1950s. I was going to say, the closest to that is that's that's me watching Grange Hill growing up. Mm, at best. I mean, it would like to have been Grange Hill, but it didn't quite have shall we say, the buy-in, maybe it didn't have the approval that Grange Hill had to, to take the risks? No, no, have got to remember, you know, Grange Hill is a body of work. We think of Grange Hill as maybe the first four years of Grange Hill until Tucker and co leave. This is only a year's worth of strip. You know, there's definitely mm. been a lot less to play with. Compare this with one season of Grange Hill, and it might be a fairer assessment. I think there was actually a lot more to play with. And one of the problems with Corot Street is that it was trying to set up the entirety of the class of 5B. Mm. Had trouble, and I'm going to mix metaphors here, sorry. Had trouble with all of the plates in the air, keeping them mm. spinning. Settled on a handful of characters it was invested in. Mm. The others got literally sidelined. But then needed to have a through line. And I don't know which came first. The impetus to have them leave school there was no spin-off no clobber's luck no but he's the character who probably had the most potential unless you want to go with baby's veterinary school years what were you suggesting that would the worry would be with that well yeah this is it this is 1984 eagle so we are into the years of austerity in the mm. uk we're in thatcher's britain unemployment is on the rise job prospects for young school leavers are not looking so healthy. Mm. 
But we're sitting in Fred Baker's schoolboy memories. They don't have a place in Crow Street. So, yeah, you're probably better off, as you suggested, Dave, seeing Crow Street as an idealised school days. And why not? Again, you know, the mm. elephants, the helicopters, the, the haunted railway stations and everything. It's a throwback to something which probably never existed, but it sits incongruously in the outside world of the Eagle reader. Who would be the writer to take on the future of the Crow Street crew? Well, aside from Phil Richmond. <laughs> if it was ever to happen that they did do a, a Crow Street carry-on, Hmm. What would you like to see? Uh, yes, let's do, for want of a better term, let's do Clobber's Luck, mm-hmm. because he is the character who's proved to be the most resilient and the most agile. Boy's got skills. Turns out Furniture Restorations is a new one. Mm-hmm. But you've got all of the tapestry there for him and Creeper to have lots of misadventures, sort of like a, a young Only Fools and Horses mm-hmm. minder junior. Oh. Man, if you wanted to go straight down the line, Scott Goodall could have done it. Okay. He wrote Young Kids pretty well in Walk or Die. I mean, he also did The Invisible Boy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, I'll I'll lean on the the Walk or Die. If you want to go for misadventures, then, hey, John Wagner. (laughs) You know, Alan Grant. Mm -hmm. But I feel that they're already quite busy on another comic, uh, working with some even more fantastic characters. Can we put a pin in that for 100 issues, Peter? Yeah. Have I got a surprise for you? Yeah, I think I know where this is going. i just got one more lo- further observation, Dave. Mm-hmm. Mr. Babbitt. Yes? Always wondered why he looked familiar. The curly hair, the thick-rimmed glasses. Is he supposed to be based on Bamba Gascoigne? The problem is, growing up in New Zealand, I don't have a frame of reference. For me, mm. Bamba Gascoigne is a character out of the young ones. Yes, yeah, Bambi, yep. Yeah, yeah, or Mark Gatiss in, doing a pseudoscientist. Yeah, well, Mark Gatiss playing Bamba Gascoigne in Starter for Ten, a movie with James McAvoy and Rebecca Hall. I don't actually think I've seen it, but yeah, I can see where you're going. I'm mm. not qualified to comment. Uh, fact fans, if you're interested in seeing Starter for Ten, also uh, has a couple of characters from the Star Trek universe, Alice Eve, daughter of Trevor Eve, of course, and a little-known actor of the time called Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, branded and can be scrambled. Yes. But that's Crow Street Comp, unless you have any further remarks to make. Look, we've mercilessly ripped Crow Street Comp along the way, which we tend to do more for things we sort of like a bit. You, you'll know that when we're sick of Amstel, we just give it a three-line summary and move on. So yeah. I think the grief we give it is a testament to some of its better qualities. And it has been the lighter touch story throughout. It has been the comic relief. It has been the break from Doom Lord and yeah. things. It's been good. It's been a mainstay. It's it's had some memorable characters and it's been fun. Look, its heart's always been in the right place. And it left on a, if not a high, we weren't cursing it walking out the door. No, unlike The Invisible Boy, for mm. example, we never actually turned around to utter outright mockery. Yeah. And that's not the note I want to go on and, and, and depart on with Crow Street Comp. No. But, um, oh God. The <laughs> clock was ticking? Crow Street Comp. We didn't hate it. Um, no. <laughs> Crow Street Comp. Mostly harmless. If they'd done Clubber Gates the Next Generation with his nephew, I think that would have been the bridge too far. It's funny because that was another thing that almost seemed like they were setting up the next, the next class. Yeah. 
and then we saw a glimpse of another school this world building never got paid up and maybe that's it it was the sum of a lot of parts which never really came together fair enough school is like that school is episodic and maybe in that way crow street comp is a lot more honest <laughs> speaking of honest what in your honest opinion is your best and worst of this round of oh, episodes peter crikey. do you know dave it almost seems like we've been doing this for a week <laughs> because of technical issues. So my top story for this week, I enjoyed Doom Lord. God, I enjoyed Danny Pike. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed Bloodfang. And, you know, News Team is improving itself. A return to form. Yep. I think, though, my tippity top goes to the fists of Danny Pike. Yep. I have lovely memories of this run of Doomwood stories, but I think we're awarding the body of work that has been Danny Pike leading up to this point. Yeah. Because I have to agree with you. I think that's the pick of the crop. Yeah. A writer still seeing the height of his powers <laughs> unfolding mm-hmm. on, on, in various comics at this stage, and a seasoned artist who just tells a story like nobody else is doing in this comic. Mm-hmm. Beautifully paced towards the end. Yeah, an absolute rip snorter. Needs to be collected. And your worstest? Um, weirdly enough, from the same pen <laughs> with a different artist, it's one I jack. I just can't. I just can't with this guy, Dave. I can't. I've got to say, for me, it's it's dear mm. because just whatever happened, and we'll never know, probably. But reading it now, it's it's so distracting. And mm. if you think about that as a collection of what would be five weeks, say, it's very slow. You know, there's not, not a lot occurring. We've said that a lot with Deer, whether it's been because it's only had two pages or two pages and a cover, or they were never going to get off that dreaded death world with its Terracon frog face lizard thing. Or if it's simply because it's next to Doom Lord, which is bouncing along, and Danny Pike, which is cracking along at a pace. Don't know. No. But I, I'm going to pitch for Dead, not through any failing of the art. Just this run of issues, I just couldn't, you know. I was more distracted behind, with the story behind the story, mm. which um, is not great. No. Maybe things will pick up next time, because as you said, we've got a lot of things finishing up soon. We do. Next month is our big clearing out episode before the screen merger, which is going to change the face of Eagle for an awfully long time. No pun intended there. No. <laughs> So, tune in with us next time when... More disasters hit the earth in Dandere. News Team signs off on its last dispatch. We meet the Marathon Man for a brief run. Bloodfang thunders his way to a titanic finale. Mannix returns with a little friend. And the Geminids continue to plague Doomlord. Mm. We've been Where Eagles Dare. You can find us on SoundCloud. We have a Facebook page. You can also contact us at soforgeddon at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at soforgeddon. Until next time, everyone, stay safe and well. And it's a good night for me. And it's a very good night for me. Good, good night. night. This is it! It's really happening! Who needs qualifications? Who cares about Thatcher and unemployment? We can do just exactly whatever we want to do. And do you know why? Because we're young ones. Bachelor boys. Crazy, mad, wild-eyed, big-bottomed anarchists! <laughs> Look out! Clear it! <laughs>